You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. David had completely conquered all of the land of Canaan and reigned completely throughout that land. So remember last time we talked about the various wars against the different people. But now they are over. And it would seem the first order of business for a victorious king would be the concern for his people, that is Israel. But instead, we see the sudden desire to show kindness to a survivor of Saul's family. David was known to be a man after God's own heart, and for great reason. Though he made his fair share of mistakes, he understood that love is the heart of God. In today's message, Pastor Mike expands on the heart of David and how he showed kindness in the most unexpected places. And just like David showed kindness to those considered less than him, Christ also shows you great kindness. Isn't that a beautiful truth to soak in today? Jesus chooses to love you, even in all your mess. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9 as he begins his message, The Kindness of God. What is kindness? Well, according to Webster's uh, College Dictionary, it defines kindness as the state or quality of being kind. A kind act, a favor, a behavior, a friendly feeling, or liking. Now notice this definition that is provided for us, and I believe that this definition uh, that's provided for us through Webster's College Dictionary actually fails us. And the reason why I believe that it fails us is because it focuses more on what a kind person does, that is their actions, than the very nature of kindness, which if you think about it, is actually an inward quality of man. It's intrinsic virtue within a person. And so here's the problem with just the definition. Sometimes acts of benevolence are used to mask ulterior motives. You know, a poet warns us of the danger which lies behind a false front. And he said, and I quote, not always actions show the man we find who does a kindness is not therefore kind. You see, sometimes kindness can be used as a cloak to hide the defects of our human nature. For example, uh, some of the things that we uh, do under the banner of being kind may sometimes uh, actually be done to ease our 
pain or the pain that we've inflicted upon other people. The things that we've done to cause uh, other people hurt through greed or self-gratification or guilt. All of those ulterior uh, motives. But what it should be is a spontaneous response of a generous disposition. Kindness in the Bible is a word that is used to describe the heart of someone who is uh, good. It is also described as one who is greater uh, giving someone who is smaller. Like, for example, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 7, there we are told, now beyond our contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. So anyway, it is a moral goodness that enables a person to be friendly and kind towards others without obscure, hidden motives. An example of this is God's unlimited benevolence even towards those who are his enemies. For example, in the book of Romans in chapter 5 and verse 8, there we are told, but God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God's kindness is a reflection of his moral uprightness, wholesomeness, dependability, and purity of heart. You know, one of my favorite texts of scripture in the book of Romans in chapter 2, in verse 4, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing, and notice this, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And I want you to think about that work of God within your own life. You know, God blessing, God reaching out to you. We didn't do anything that warranted God revealing his kindness towards us or his love towards us, but nevertheless, he did exactly that. It was the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Well, as we are about to focus our thoughts here on 2 Samuel chapter 9, you will notice the repeated use of the word kindness by David, and in his actions we're given a graphic example of one person's kindness towards another. Okay, so with all that said, that sets up our Bible study. So let's get into that chapter, chapter 9, and let's begin there in verse 1. Now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now listen, you know what? I think that he serves up a great example of the way that we should be kind towards other people. Notice the question that he asks here. What can I do for other uh, people? And this question was asked out of the desire, actually the covenant that he made with Jonathan. Remember going back to our studies in 1 Samuel in chapter 20, a couple of months ago, there in verse 20 in chapters 14 and 15, when Jonathan understood, Jonathan was Saul's son, and he knew that God was going to replace his father as king and put David in his place. And so to that end, he made a covenant with his good friend David that when he did, in fact, ascend to the throne, that he would show kindness towards his family. And so David is picking up on that, and he's reminded of that very thing. And so that's really the reason why he asked this question. He's looking for one of Jonathan's members of his family that he might be able to show that kindness and make good on the covenant that they had made uh, together a while ago. Now, this to me is curious 
I mean, the wars of chapter 8, remember last time together we talked about the various wars that David was engaged in, the various battles that uh, David had fought, and now finally David had completely conquered all of the land of Canaan and reigned completely throughout that land. So remember last time we talked about the various wars against the different people, but now they are over. And it would seem the first order of business for a victorious king would be the concern for his people, that is, Israel. But instead, we see the sudden desire to show kindness to a survivor of Saul's family. Well, first of all, we need to understand the historical setting of this event and the things that led up to it. And remember, Israel has been fighting these wars, chapter 8, as I've already mentioned. Their very survival was at stake, but this problem was compounded by the internal struggles of having to deal with a famine in their land as well. So not only did they have to fight against their enemies in the land of Canaan, but also at the same time there was a famine in the land. You know what I see in this? I think that this is very typical of our own Christian experience. As with Israel of old, our problems are often multifaceted. Isn't that true? You know, many times there's not only one issue that we have to deal with as Christians, but there are many at the same time. You know, and I've said this so many times before, just because of the fact that we are a child of God, because we are Christians, we're not exempt from trouble in our life's experience. And so often the troubles that we experience and that we have to face are compounded. And such was the case with David and Israel. So the onset of the famine at this time, at first, was just an annoyance. This is the way that they related to it. They didn't fully understand how long the famine would continue. So at first, uh, they thought of it or perceived it as just an annoyance, uh, a minor anxiety. But next, they thought of it as just having a bad year, that you know, at the end of the year, this whole thing would you know, end. You know, and it was only going to be for a season. Next year, things would be better. But to David's surprise, he found that the famine continued to linger for a period of three years until David was forced to inquire of the Lord. Have you ever been in that kind of a situation where you know, you're faced with a particular situation and at first you just think you know, it's an annoyance or some kind of a minor anxiety? You know, you've been trusting in the Lord. You figure, well... You know, God has allowed this to come into my life for a very specific purpose. And, you know, it's something that's here today, but we're just sure that it's going to be gone tomorrow. God's going to deal with it. But nevertheless, it continues to linger on. Have you ever been in that kind of a situation? And you're starting to think, where is God in all of this? And then you make your appeal unto the Lord. God, what's going on here? And uh, this thing is going on longer than I've expected to go on. And such was the case with David. David was forced to inquire of the Lord. Okay, so a little bit of a preview. The Lord is going to answer this question of David's. I want you to jump ahead now in this book of the Bible to chapter 21. So turn there with me. The Lord answers this question uh, that David uh, asked of the Lord. So jump ahead to chapter 21 and verse 1, and there we have the answer. Now there was a famine in the days of David, notice there, for three years. Years. 
year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, Lord, what's going on here? Is there a reason for this? And the Lord answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. Now, notice the Lord's response. The nation was being punished because Saul had broken the covenant Joshua had made with the Gibeonites so many years before. Okay, so to understand what's going on here, we now have to jump back to the book of Joshua. So I'm going to ask you to do that with me. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Joshua in chapter 9. And let's begin in verse 1. And this will help us to understand what's going on. And the actual covenant that was broken by Saul, the reason for this famine continuing for a period of three years. So Joshua chapter 9 and verse 1. And let me set this up for you. This was during the time where Joshua had now taken the mantle of Moses. Uh, Israel had already crossed the Jordan, entered into the land of promise, and now they were fighting the various battles. God went before them. They had already captured two specific cities, the cities of Jericho and also the city of Ai. They were sort of like on a roll, and they were invincible. God was going before them, just defeating each enemy that they had to face. So with that said, chapter 9 and verse 1, And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, in the hills and in the lowland, and in all the coasts of the great sea, that's a reference to the Mediterranean, towards Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, heard about it. What did they hear about? The battle that had been won by Joshua and Israel, taking the city of Jericho. So that's the reference to that uh, battle and their being successful. That they gathered together all of the other people in the land of Canaan, and they were going to attack Israel, a frontal attack. They gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So they band together to fight against Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, those two cities, they were not going to be a part of this group that was going to go up and frontal attack the nation of Israel and Joshua. And so they're very crafty in what they're about to do. They disguise their true identity. And in verse 4, in other words, the idea here is that we're not the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, so you don't really have to fight against us. They worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins, torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him, they're looking to deceive Joshua, and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Oh, we're not the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. You see what's going on here? We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. They're trying to trick uh, Joshua. And you've got to understand something about culturally, uh, the covenants that Israel had made, the vows that they had made. Uh, back then, when you made a covenant or you made a vow to a person, listen, you followed through with that a vow, because you had made that vow not only to the person that you had made it to, but also to God. And God took the vows and the covenants that you made very seriously. 
Well, anyway, in verse 8, But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? And so they said to him, From a very far country, and your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord your God, Jehovah, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. So this was the proper admiration that these Gibeonites had for the God of uh, Israel, although they were trying to actually deceive Joshua. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan, uh, who was at Ashtaroth, therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants, now therefore make a covenant uh, with us. Notice there, again, they disguised themselves. They took moldy bread along with them, you know, to deceive them. Again, the idea was that they had come from a far country, that they weren't the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Verse 12, This bread of ours we took hot, for our provision from our house on the day we departed to come to you, you know, many days uh, before. But now look, it is dry and moldy. Again, they're trying to deceive Joshua. And these wineskins, which we filled, were new. And see now, they are torn. And these are our garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not counsel of the Lord. You see, this is where they made their mistake. You see, they weren't to enter into any covenant with the people of the land of Canaan. They were to defeat every inhabitant. They were to drive them out of the land. You know, if they would have just taken the time out to seek the counsel of the Lord, they would have known that they were trying to deceive them. You know, what do we take away from this? Well, listen, when you're faced with a situation that you're not quite sure about, you don't know whether to go forward or to stand still or you don't know exactly what to do, it would serve you well to just seek the counsel of the Lord. You know, if you honor the Lord in seeking Him, I believe that He'll answer you and that He'll give you the direction. He'll give you His blueprint. He'll tell you what you should do. Well, this is where they fail. And so then we are told, so Joshua, because of the fact that they did not counsel of the Lord, so Joshua made peace with them. So in fact, they were deceived, and they made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they had heard that they were their neighbors. In fact, that they were inhabitants of the land of Canaan, who dwelt near them. So guess what? They were now busted. But nevertheless, they had made the covenant. And as I mentioned before, when you made a covenant or made a vow, not only to an individual, but it was also a covenant and a vow that you made unto the Lord. And so you couldn't go back upon that vow. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Bereth, and Kareth Jerem, but the children of Israel did not attack them, these inhabitants of the Gibeonites, because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, 
lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore. Okay, now let's go back to chapter 21 in 2 Samuel, and let's pick up now in verse 2. So the king, that is David, called the Gibeonites. Remember now, God had already spoken to them. The reason why there was the famine in the land for three years was because of Saul not keeping the vow and the covenant Joshua had made with the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. So he had broken the covenant that Joshua had made with them. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? Okay, so without provocation, Saul had attempted to exterminate an entire group of people. And this sin had never been confessed, nor was there any attempt to undo this wrong. You see, God hadn't forgotten the covenant that Joshua had made with them. And so Saul's descendants are now being punished. And thus we have the famine in the land. And since the Gibeonites were the ones who were sinned against, David asked them what justice they will accept so that this famine can be lifted from the land. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 3 through 6. What did the Gibeonites say to David? Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, Saul, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, and this is what they decided upon, let seven men of Saul's descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul. And Gibeah, remember, was the city where Saul had set up his kingdom, whom the Lord chose, and the king said, I will give them. And so it is after these descendants of Saul's have been executed that David was moved by compassion. Now let's go back to 1 Samuel in chapter 9. It was then that David moved by compassion. Once again, asked this question that's recorded first in chapter 9, 2 Samuel in verse 1. Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? In my father's house, there's a place for me. In my father's house, where I long to be. In the book of 2 Samuel, the king God anointed is finally on the throne. King David, the man after God's heart, is in the place God planned for him. Yet David is still human. And as you continue to study this book with Pastor Mike, you'll see that fact time and time again. David falls to the temptation of sin and reaps the consequences of his actions. 
but he does do one thing consistently. David repents when confronted and returns to the Lord. What an example of faithfulness and mercy. God forgives his chosen leader and restores the relationship that sin had broken. This same God is merciful to you, too, and his forgiveness is just as real when you come to him in repentance. Thanks for listening today to In My Father's House. You can explore more of these messages by searching for In My Father's House with Mike Venizio on your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe. If you're looking for a place in Midtown Manhattan to come together with others and worship Jesus, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday for worship at Harvest Christian Fellowship. You'll find directions and service times at harvestnyc.org. If this broadcast is an encouragement to you, would you consider supporting us? If you feel led, we're thankful for any financial support. In fact, you can donate securely on our website. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. Thanks for partnering with us in this way. That's all for today. Tune in next time for more on In My Father's House.